Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We're going to read the verse, first uh, 11 verses. However, I uh, give you advance notice that this is a topical sermon, as will be the next four sermons in this rotation. So five topical sermons. I make no apology uh, for that. There are many topical sermons um, in the Bible. Um, So um, we'll be using this as somewhat of a springboard to look at many other passages with respect to the subject of corporate prayer. The council had their yearly strategy meeting last week. Once a year we go away, usually overnight and uh, Friday uh, night and Saturday, and we examine uh, our ministry in the year gone by and plan and make correction for the ministry that lies in the year ahead. And part of that strategy meeting is to conduct a SWOT test, which some of you may be familiar with. It's S-W-O-T, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. So we spent most of our day Saturday uh, going through that, and we noted that as a congregation and as leadership of this congregation, we had five weaknesses, all right? And those five uh, weaknesses are going to be addressed in these five topical sermons over the course of this coming month. The first is corporate prayer, all right? Um, we get, we're, we, if you look at our attendance roster of people who ordinarily, regularly attend worship here, it's probably between 110 and 125 people. And yet, Tuesday night prayer meeting, at the most, uh, is attended by six, seven people. Now, we shouldn't, uh, I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty, if you go to evangelical churches around New York City, whether uh, their attendance is 1,000 or whether it's 100, uh, the prayer meeting is the worst attended meeting of the church, all right? So we're in good company, all right? Everybody's like this, Okay. And yet, on the other hand, so we shouldn't feel guilty, on the other hand, um, we should be convicted. Um, I read a book uh, yesterday about corporate prayer, which convicted me very much so. And it's why I preached this sermon this morning. So I say that to make it very clear. My intention as your pastor is not to make you guilty, right? We're saved by grace, not by works not by the intensity or the frequency of our devotions, all right? We're saved by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And yet, all right, as we'll see in the Apostle Paul in this chapter, that uh, gift of salvation should result in certain behaviors, and in this particular behavior as church, we're weak. And therefore, I don't preach this to make you guilty, but I do hope that the Holy Spirit will convict you as he convicted me, all right? So one finger, there's four pointing back at me, all right? Be assured that I have been under the conviction of the Spirit by this word before I preach it to you. The other four areas are tithing, evangelism, worship, and every member ministry. All right, so we'll get to those in subsequent weeks. Today, prayer. And let's begin by praying. Father, we come to you 
And we thank you for Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, standing before your throne, ever living to intercede on our behalf, that our elder brother is there, bringing our prayers before your throne, that you might hear and that you might heed our petitions. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come and that he would come and speak to us this morning. Speak to us in an effective way to change us and make us pleasing in your sight. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 9, we're going to read the first 11 verses. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. Two points to the sermon this morning. First of all, the imperatives about congregational prayer, and secondly, the incentives to congregational prayer. The imperatives of congregational prayer and the incentives of congregational prayer. Look at verse 11 and note, if you will, the connection between the gospel, right? What is the gospel? The gospel um, is salvation, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life by grace alone, by Jesus Christ alone, because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished in his life, his death, and his resurrection. All right? So that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is because of what Jesus Christ has done. And, and yet Jesus Christ here appears to Saul and makes him Paul, all right? And that's the gospel. The gospel is a message of grace, but it is a grace that changes lives. And the evidence or the consequence of the gospel in Saul's life is that he was praying. You'll remember, because the text goes on, they objected to Saul. Because they knew he was going around dragging people out of homes, throwing them in jail, beating them and persecuting them. He was a member of the seed of the serpent. He was on that side of the antithesis. And he was persecuting Christians. And they didn't want to go to him. Because they knew what he was looking out for. He was looking out for them Christians. 
to get them. But the Lord said, be home. He's praying. He's been changed by the gospel. I want to focus today on corporate prayer. 94% of American adults who prayed in the last three months have done so by themselves. And I trust that everyone here prays in some form or another, whether with your family or by yourself or in your devotional life. So enough said about that. That's a given, all right? 94% of Americans in the last three months have prayed, but they prayed by themselves, all right? Corporate prayer is less compelling as a driver in people's lives because, not because, but the American church is functionally prayerless when it comes to corporate prayer. There are churches in the city that have thousands of members. And when they hold a prayer meeting, you might get 30 or 40. We're functionally, as a North American church, prayerless. We are too. My open prayer is to correct that this morning. The imperatives of corporate prayer. Praying is an activity of relationship. It hinges on your sense of its importance. Praying together is a glorious expression of our divine and human relationships. That is, it's not just me and Jesus, but it's me and all those who belong to Jesus as well. And praying together is a glorious expression of those divine and human relationships. A precious privilege purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ, and it is an essential activity of the Holy Spirit in believers' lives. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous preacher from a bygone era, said corporate prayer is the very essence and life of the church. Is that the importance that you and I place on it? very essence and life of the church, corporate prayer. In all of Scripture, corporate prayer is a mark of spiritual liveliness. And I want you to see this. Before I read this book, and I'm stealing this material from this book, all right, you know, I'm just admitting my plagiarism here, all right, or stealing this material from this book, right? Because before I read that book, I was like, eh, prayer, prayer, yeah, we're, we should pray. Corporate prayer? I don't know. Is that really that important in the Bible? Man, was I wrong. Was I wrong. Turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. Let's look through some scriptures together. Genesis chapter 4.
Genesis chapter 4 and verse 26. Uh, Genesis 4, verse 26. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Plural, corporate, prayer. Right there in Genesis 4. Right at the beginning of the Bible. It's how this group of people was seen as separate from the society around them. How were they seen as a separate people, a called out people? A people distinct from the world by their corporate prayer. The Psalms. You know, in this congregation, if you've been here any length of time, we love to sing the Psalms. The Psalms is a whole book of the Bible given to the church, given to Israel. For, as a people, to pray and to sing. Donald Whitney, I think, wrote a book on praying the Psalms. It's a very profitable uh, 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 personal devotional exercise. I would encourage you, and I would encourage you even further, to pay attention that Jesus is the one who is speaking the psalm. It will enrich and it will illumine your spiritual life if you hear Jesus uttering the words of the psalm through the mouth of David. And as you pray them yourself... And as you sing them. But recall that that's a book that is given not to an individual. It's given to a group of people. It's given to Israel. It's given to us as church. As a book of prayers and songs. The Psalms. Look at Psalm 90. Just a few here. Psalm 90. And note the personal pronouns. Psalm 90. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Verse 7, for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Verse 17, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. All plural pronouns. I'm sure you read the Psalms. I know I do. Many of us have a practice of reading a number of Psalms every day, book of the Proverbs every day. It's a good practice, all right? But notice, this is corporate. This is a corporate prayer. Turn back to 2 Chronicles, chapter 6. 2 Chronicles. Turn back, Kings, Samuel Kings, Chronicles. 2 Chronicles, chapter 6. Verse 29. Prayer is being offered here. Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind. This was a corporate prayer or it was a representative prayer, pastoral prayer, as the mouthpiece of the people. Look at Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah chapter 56, 
We looked at chapter 53 in our 1030 service, Isaiah 56, verse 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my, uh, on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. E.J. Young, who's a professor at Westminster Seminary, uh, gone to be with the Lord, but wrote a magnificent commentary on the book of Isaiah. He said, Here is the beauty of holiness. Men from all nations brought to his household by sovereign grace lift up the sacrifice of prayer unto his holy name which they love, and in his name serve him in his house. That's us. 28 nationalities here. My house should be called a house of prayer. Corporately. Multi-nations. All saved. Covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, dressed in his righteousness, gathering for prayer. Look at Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Look at Daniel, Ezekiel, Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. You remember Shadrach, right? Pastor Dan has been in Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verse 17. Daniel 2, verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven. You think they all went to their prayer closet? No, they got together, kneeled down, and prayed together. Look at verse 18. And told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of uh, Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in verse 20. Blessed be the name of God forever to whom belong wisdom and might. Corporate prayer. Look at the book of Esther. Turn back now before Psalms, right? Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, right? Esther. We're dealing with this historically or chronologically, if you will. Esther, Esther, I told you I was reading my Bible chronologically this year. Esther chapter 4, verse 15. Esther 4, verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Fasting and praying always go together in the Bible, right? Gather all the Jews and do this. I and the young women will also fast as you two. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Corporate. We're God's people. All the Jews, together, let us fast and pray. Look at Ezra. Esther, right? Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. Turn back. Ezra, Ezra. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. Then I proclaimed the fast there at the river Ahava, that we, might, that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our gods. And then verse 23. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Corporate prayer and fasting. Corporate prayer and fasting. Look at Ezra 10, verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. All of them, together. Look at Matthew. You say, hey, what about the Lord's Prayer? Isn't that a personal prayer? Well, let's look at the Lord's Prayer. Let's look at the Lord's Prayer, all right? Right? Disciples said, hey, we don't teach us to pray, Jesus. And 
He said, all right, I'll teach you. Pray then like this. This is a covenantal corporate prayer. Again, pay attention to the pronouns. Look, our Father in heaven. Our. So even when you pray this individually, right, in your private personal devotions, I hope you do, I think that's fine, all right, nothing against that, all right. But even when you do it, you're praying it with all God's people. Our Father. I'll bet a dollar to a bag of donuts, nobody in this congregation in your personal devotion says, my Father who art in heaven. No. Our Father. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. You see, I don't know. I, I, I don't know, and I, I'm not a prophet of the son of a prophet, so I hesitate to even say this, all right? But, you know, we're Americans, right? Rugged individuals. Spirit of independence. We have no covenant consciousness. We're part of a people who pray together. We need to cultivate a covenant consciousness in the practices of our church. Look at Matthew 21. It's very interesting. You remember what we read uh, earlier about my house, what we call the house of prayer? Matthew 21, verse 13. Jesus is cleansing the temple, right? Jesus was no wimp, right? When it came time to get tough, he got tough, right? He says, all right, the rubber's going to hit the road. You're making my house a den of thieves. Get out of here. Verse 13. My house shall be called a house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers. Did you miss it? This is in the temple. What happened in the temple? You can say it. Sacrifice. This, this, that was the center of Israel's worship, was to come and offer sacrifice at the temple, morning and afternoon sacrifice. Do you catch it now? Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Not sacrifice. Look at Acts. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Acts are the acts of the apostles, or if you will, it's the acts of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ by his spirit through the apostles, and it records the actions of all these people who had their lives transformed by the grace of God. It's grace alone that saves, but it's saving grace changes people. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Chapter 1, grace transformed people, devoted to corporate prayer. Notice specifically uh, the characteristic, 
devoted, united, all these with one accord, and diverse, all of them together, out of many, one. Twenty times, I'm not going to go through all of them, explicitly in the book of Acts, you have examples of corporate prayer, and implicitly, many times more. 124, 242, 246, 31, 423 to 31, 64, 815 to 17, 12, verse 5, verse 12, 13, verse 1, verse 3, 14, verse 23, 15, verse 40, 16, 13 and 16, 25, 20, 36 to 38, 21, 5 and 6, 27, 35 to 38, 28, 8 and 15. Corporate. Grace transformed lives, corporate prayer. Want more? Romans 1, verse 12, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 11, Ephesians 6, verse 18, Philippians 4, verse 5 and 6, Colossians 4, verses 2 through 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, and verse 25, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, 1 Timothy 2, 1, 2, and 8, Hebrews 13, 8, and... Looks like 25, James 5, 13 through 16, Jude, verses 20 and 21. Corporate prayer, everybody, everywhere, everything, praying together. The church is not just a group of individuals who pray, but individuals who pray together. The imperatives of corporate prayer. I trust that everybody here believes that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of God. And one word from God would be enough for any Christian to say, Amen, so be it. But when we have so many examples, can we not Heed them? Ought we not to assign some measure requisite of the importance of corporate prayer to the life of Messiah's Reformed Fellowship? I think we should. I tell you, I was convicted as if a spear went through me when I read this. How could I be reading my Bible from cover to cover every year and miss this? And yet I did. I suspect you did too. But don't you love the Lord? Because it would be enough, and I know those of you who love the Lord here, if Jesus said, jump, your response would be how high? Because you love him. But he's a loving Lord. He sweetens the pot. He provides incentives. He doesn't demand willful obedience blindly to authoritarian commands that rain down like lightning bolts from heaven. He said, let let me incentivize this for you. Let me make it pleasant for you. Let me hold out the carrot so that you see the benefit, the blessing, 
which I'm holding out for you and which you're missing in this. So here are the incentives. When Christians pray together, God says he will defeat his enemies. God says he will proclaim his glory. God says he will revive hearts. He will answer your requests. He will grant you his presence. And he will bring healing. All of those things in answer to corporate prayers in the Bible. Too numerous to articulate. Because prayer is an activity of relationship. God and us. And just think. It's a relationship not just with with God, but we pray to God the Father. Through Jesus, the Son, whoever lives to intercede for us. And we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. It's a communal activity. It's inherently relational. And all of us with God. The author whom I was reading says this. To know what effect our sin... Oh, I'm sorry. If you're a good Bible student, you'll know that in the Gospels it says God doesn't hear the prayer of sinners. And if you're not a Christian, then God doesn't hear your prayers. If you're a disobedient Christian, if you turn the deaf ear to the law, God says he will not hear your prayer. If you're an abusive husband... Peter says he won't hear your prayers. And yet we live in a country where we hear our political leaders and our sports authorities and one thing or the other, oh, God bless us, God bless us, God bless us, as if somehow God's just some grandfather hanging out on the edge of a cloud, kindly disposed towards everybody, just waiting for us to come and beg him for his mercies. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says, I don't hear the prayer of sinners. So you and I, at least me, I'm a sinner. I think you are too. How do we overcome that? How do you deal with that? To know what effect our sin has on our right to pray, we must go to the cross. There at Golgotha, the God-man shoulders the wrath of God in our place. And here we find a prayer that is the most horrific to ever be uttered. Here the condemned Savior cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's no answer. Forsaken by God. God the Son cut off from relationship to the Father. Jesus' prayer as the accursed Sin-bearer was met only with silence. Edmund Clowney, former professor at Westminster, used to tell his students, quote, You haven't heard the cry of the Son until you've heard the Father who didn't answer. What do your prayers, what do my prayers, what do our prayers justly deserve? Silence. I said to somebody the other day, I said, 
They said, how are you? I said, I'm better than I deserve. They said, that's right. I said, the only thing I deserve is an eternity in hell. Everything else is gravy. What do your prayers deserve? Silence. And yet the God who rejected the prayer of the wrath-bearing sons accepts your prayers, my prayers, our prayers because of Jesus because of the gospel many of you know that when we started Messiah's Reform Fellowship 20 years ago this month downtown a number of you were there down at Water Street when we began worship. We were started as a response to the terrorist attack on the Twin Towers on September 11th. Many of you recall that at that time I mentioned the book that was published by Banner of Truth. I would encourage you all to read it. It's called The Power of Prayer. It talks about the revival of 1857. A revival started by one man in the Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street. One man, Jeremiah Lamphere. Those of you who are King's students know that Jeremiah's statue is in the lobby of King's College to this day. You could go see it. Lamphere wrote in his diary, quote, One day as I was walking along the streets, the idea was suggested to my mind that an hour of prayer from 12 to 1 o'clock would be beneficial to businessmen who usually in great numbers take that hour for rest and refreshment. That first prayer meeting held on September 23rd, 1857, soon expanded to 150 noontime meetings throughout the city where instead of taking a rest, the businessmen of New York gave themselves and their God no rest. You want to hear an incentive? What an answer they received. Beginning in New York and then throughout the United States, the Lord poured out his spirit on his people. Samuel Prime reported the changes which came over the church were most welcome. It was a blessed spectacle presented to the world, a church alive, a church active, a church of prayer. It was a sublime spectacle when this was seen as the moral position, not of one church, but of a majority of churches, not in one place, but in every place, when all the land seemed to be moved by one common impulse. Records have it that there were 50,000 conversions a week in the revival of 1857. I ask you to pray, to pray together, to pray for renewal, to pray for revival, to pray for reformation, 
to pray for God to pour forth his Holy Spirit yet once again upon this church, upon all of us, you and me together, to have an impact here, now, where God in his good providence has placed us. Let's pray. Father, I pray. We pray that you would overcome our blindness to the plurality of examples and incentives and imperatives in the 66 books of the Bible about corporate prayer. Forgive us. Change us. Make us a people of prayer. Send forth your Holy Spirit, we pray, to work not only in our midst, to bring about great God-glorifying change, but in the midst of this city where you have placed us, scattered us, dispersed us throughout the metropolitan area. So that wherever it is that we live, work, study, or pray, play, we might make Jesus known as a Savior of sinners and as King of kings and Lord of lords. Glorify your name, we pray. In his name, amen and amen.